0: They were a people who lived with no restraint. They uh, lived as if the ends justified the means. They, they stopped at nothing to get what they wanted. They breached contracts. Um, they had a, a dog-eat-dog, cutthroat kind of world they lived in. Um, they greedily took whatever they wanted, even if it wasn't theirs. They lived as if nothing else mattered. They, they lived in a self-centered world where they had no real Awareness of God or His judgment. Sound familiar? Some might say, oh, it sounds like the last place I worked. So it sounds like a society around us. And in, in reality, that sounds a lot like all of human history. We've been studying the book of Mark from the beginning to the end. We're, we're starting in chapter 12 today, and we've seen some recurring patterns uh, that have taken place. Uh, Jesus first came on the scene, basically a little over the first half of the book, uh, was Jesus coming on the scene and announcing that the kingdom of God was near. And he, he called people to follow him, and, and the basic sense was he was showing them what it meant to follow him, and he's going to teach them what it was like, and they were going to learn along the way uh, what this kingdom of God was about and what he was like as the king, as the Messiah. And, and, and what they've discovered throughout is that what they thought the kingdom of God was like, what they thought God was like is completely upside down from what Jesus is saying God is like what the kingdom is like and and we had this very interesting passage last week a passage that's often referred to as uh, Jesus clearing the temple or cleansing the temple and and we discovered more it was Jesus didn't come in and overturn the tables and and cast out the people and turn over the tables of the money changers and the people selling animals for sacrifice because he was he was angry that they were buying and selling things no the the buying and selling in that in, in that context was what they were supposed to do it was part of the law that was allowed to to do it that way what he was upset about is that he, this temple had turned from what God intended to be a, a house of prayer for all people, and it turned into what he said was a den of robbers. And we discover, because when we think about what's a den of robbers, right? A den of robbers is not where the robbers do the crime. It's where they, they come to hide out after they've committed crime, right? And Jesus related what they were doing in and to the temple, changing it from this place that was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer for all people to a place they, they live their life however they want, but when they come to the temple, they say, We're safe. We're safe here because we're God's people. It doesn't matter how we live out there. We're safe here. And, and Jesus basically called them a den of robbers, which was after a passage in the book of Jeremiah that talked about how the people had turned what God intended for good into this, this horrible thing. And they come and they speak the despicable words, and those despicable words were, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Meaning, we come in here and say the right things and we're safe. No matter how we've lived. He said, that's what you've done. And he, he equated the temple to the fig tree. If you remember that part of the story. This fig tree that looked beautiful from a distance. When Jesus got there, there was no fruit on it. And he cursed it. Why? Because it was all leaf and no fruit. It was all form and no substance. It was all show. And he's saying, that's what the temple is like. That's what it's become. And and he started introducing the way, and we've seen through Mark, how Jesus has lived as the temple, doing the things that up till then only the temple could do with forgiveness and, and helping people become part of society again and being authoritative. And at the end of that passage last week, some of the religious leaders who were obviously ticked off at Jesus, because by turning over the tables, he's basically saying, this system doesn't matter anymore. He's replacing it, and this system was how they got their livelihood. This is how they lived. This is what they did. This is how they got their power and their authority and their status was these things that took place. If those aren't needed anymore, what about us? And so it's this uncomfortable place for them. And they came to Jesus to try to trap him. This is where the passage ended last week. They came to him and said, well, who gives you the authority to do this? Who says you're able to do this? By what authority are you here saying these things and doing these things? And Jesus said, I'll tell you the answer if you answer me one question. And he said, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Tell me. And they got together, they huddled and said, this is a no-win situation for us because if we say John was from heaven, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say it's from men, then... Wow, people are going to be ticked off at us because most of the people think that John was from heaven and he was real. And so they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not telling you by what authority I do these things. And just by giving that answer, they knew what he meant. He's going to say he's from God. Which leads us to our passage today. He's speaking to the same people. This this is just a continuation of the same scenario. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 12 of Mark, he says, He then began to speak to them, these religious leaders, in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And just as an aside, this, this was a very common practice back then. Very few people owned land, right? And a lot of people that owned land lived in other areas. Uh, but they owned the land here, and so they would have tenant farmers take care of it. And all they requested was that they would get a portion, a percentage of the harvest, right? And normal practice. This a very normal kind of story. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of whom they beat and others they killed. He had one left to send. The owner of the vineyard do. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. When I read this parable, this, this, this story that Jesus was telling these accusers, these, those in opposition to him, Four things kind of jump out right away, just about the story, right? And one is the incredible patience of the owner of the land. So he, he rented it out, which is a normal process. He, he went on a trip, probably, you know, he's gone for a long time, and, and, and he came to collect what was his, a portion of the, the harvest, a portion of the wine that the vineyard produced. And they, they beat the servant, and then they beat another one, and then they killed one, and he keeps sending messengers, Right? And this sounds a lot like the stories we, we read in the Old Testament of, of Jesus reaching out and sending more and more prophets to his people. Right? That's, a, that's the, the feel we get. And he, he's just incredibly patient. He keeps sending one after another. No matter how horrible it turns out, he sends someone else. It's an amazingly patient and long-suffering person. I think another thing that jumps out when you read this story is, is hell, those tenants were pretty foolish. It's like, did they really think that by killing the son that, that, that they would inherit the land that... That's kind of far-fetched. Do they, do they really think by getting rid of this guy that now this belongs to us? That It seems apparently so. That's what they thought. And, and, and scholars have kind of wrestled with well, what, why would they think that in this story? Is there anything to sense and about that? Well, that culture did have a very uh, uh, pronounced idea of more than nine-tenths of the law is possession. Possession, right? If you have it, somehow it could become yours someday. There was probably that kind of mindset going on. Uh, some people think that the idea that the sun shows up To these tenants who had had so many come visit when the sun shows up, and because the owner is far away, maybe the owner has died. And so when the sun comes, it could be if we kill the sun, he's the heir. This will become ours after time. Whatever the scenario is as to why they believed, they believed that. By getting rid of the sun, this land will be ours. And that just seems like a really foolish thing to believe, that we can just not even think about the owner and somehow control this place within these walls. This is ours. In fact, if we just think about that from any of our perspectives, do we as humans really think that by, kinda, uh, by painting God out of the picture that we, we actually control this? Apparently so. I think another thing that jumps out is the boy, the, owner, the owner's judgment. Uh, there, there came a point where he said enough is enough. I kept sending these messengers and I finally sent my son. And the terminology in here is my, my love son, my beloved son, my only son, which we get a hint of John 3.16 in that word. I sent my son, and yet they killed him. And and enough is enough. And Jesus said, what is the owner going to do now? And he answered his own question. He's going to kill the tenants and turn the vineyard over to someone else. Wow, that's that's pretty harsh. I think the fourth thing that jumps out at me, just, just from the story, is also the owner's optimism. All this bad stuff that has happened, you can look at this vineyard and say, okay, I'm just done with this. I'm just selling it. It's done. I want nothing to do with it because everything I've tried hasn't worked. But no, he held out this sense of hope that, that he'll get rid of these tenants and they're just going to give it to someone else. Someone else is going to make it be what I want it to be and, and will follow through with what I've asked them to be. And so there's this sense of Optimism. And so we look at kind of the surface level of the story and say, yeah, he was a patient owner, and, but these people were pretty foolish, but eventually he said, enough is enough, and I'm going to give it to somebody else, and there's hopeful kind of end. And, but we ask ourselves, so what, what do we do with this? How, how do we wrestle through this story? What's, what's the point of it? And for that, we really need to step into the shoes of these religious leaders, right? When, when, when Jesus is telling the story, they're going to they're gonna hear some things that we don't hear because we're not from that time and place. Like when he first starts out and says, a man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a winepress, and built a watchtower. These religious leaders would instantly recognize that, that image of a vineyard from Old Testament imagery, where throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people are referred to as the vineyard. The the vineyard of God, in in particular in in chapter 5 of Isaiah, which is make it bountiful and good, and he poured out life and lavished love on this vineyard. But but the response was that the vineyard didn't produce good fruit. When he came to see the good fruit, he got nothing but bad fruit. And so there's a picture of a vineyard, and and they would instantly know this is talking about God's people. This is talking about the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation. This is talking about us. We are the vineyard, and we love that picture. In fact, other times in Scripture it talks about God is the vine dresser, right? Jesus says, I am the vine. So so this this picture of the vineyard is consistent through Scripture as God's chosen people, the ones he loves. So when they first hear the story about an owner, and it had these wicked tenants, I bet some of them thought the tenants were like the Roman Empire, right? This is God's land that he's promised to his people, but it's being run by these horrible tenants. Maybe that's Rome. I don't know. Or in other likelihood, these these religious leaders, these were people of status and wealth and power in this community. They would hear this story and also say, yeah, those lousy tenants. This was a life they would have experienced because they could see themselves as the landowner. Right in a story like this, you own this land, you own this property, you've rented out, and all you want is for these people to give you the percentage that is due you. Yeah, we've all experienced that. We know exactly what you're talking about. Jesus, those low down, no good for nothing tenants, those renters who destroyed our property. I'll tell you stories about what happened to something I own. I mean, that's the life they would have expected, right? They they knew this story; it was well known to them. But but sometime in the middle of this parable sometime in this interaction Jesus has with them, and we, we know this because of the way the passage ends, where it says that Jesus had spoken this passage against them, they realize that Jesus is looking at them and saying, you are not the landowner. You are the low-down, despicable, no-good tenants. And they wanted to have him arrested. They wanted to have him killed, right? Because he, he's just dissed them big time. He's just said, you are worthless. You've been given something to care for by God and you have destroyed it. You have refused to listen to him. You've lived in this cutthroat world. You've said, I don't care what you told us to do. We're going to live however we want. And it it plays off that story in the temple last week, just completely. It's, It's another way of just showing them face to face how much they have fallen short of who God wanted them to be as the tenants of this vineyard, as the leaders of God's people. You have taken this temple and turned it from what was intended to bless the whole world into this place of restriction where you kept people out, where it made it your cash cow, your economic stability, your ability to have power and status, and you've rejected the sun. This is a harsh statement that he made to them. Now, what's the challenge in a passage like this? In this Particularly, is, is we have a couple of dangers in it. One, and it's happened throughout Christian history, is that some people have taken this passage and made it a, say something much bigger than it does, where they have taken this to said God is turning his back on his chosen people, the vineyard, and he is destroying that, and he's going to replace it with the Gentile church. And, that isn't what this talks about. And, and, and we know that the kingdom of God is, is about all followers of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike, right? It's not, it's not that picture. They, they've, they've blasted this and made it somehow, some doctrinal strains have turned this into pretty, something pretty anti-Semitic, that, that the Jews killed Jesus. It, it's not that. Because the reality is, is this is a very focused statement to these people who were in opposition to Jesus These tenants were not the vineyard. These tenants were people who were in positions of responsibility and leadership for the vineyard. They were supposed to be leading and guiding in a certain way and they had completely lost track of that and made it all about them and what they can get out of it. We don't care what we're supposed to do. This is our little world and we're in charge. That way we can make it a den of robbers. right? What matters is us doesn't matter what that far-off landowner. The far-off God thinks. This is ours. And so this is such an indictment of these leaders, not of everyone, but of these leaders, these people that were facing off. Jesus basically set a trap for them where suddenly they went, he said to them, you're the tenants that have mistreated the messengers, the servants that God sent. And throughout the... But they were afraid of the people, so they left. Jesus has basically been pronouncing in his teaching for the last, we've seen the last few chapters of what's going to happen to them, to him at the hands of these leaders. And, and it's showing to play out. Now, see, see, the reality is in that kind of scenario, right? If you're these leaders and you just have this pronounced on you and you, you back it up with all the other stuff you've seen, the healings that Jesus has done, the power that he's exhibited, the casting out of demons, the, the way he said, I can forgive sins, the way he's reinterpreted to them what the law meant, all these things. You have two choices. One could be, wow, I'm feeling kind of convicted of this. Maybe I need to rethink. Or I don't like this one bit. He has to be done with. That, that's the option they chose was to ignore what they saw, whether they thought it was true or not. This was messing with their whole position in life. We have to stop this and get rid of this man. He's meddling in our business. We don't like it. This is is the scenario of this. The other danger of this kind of passage, if we, we make it more than it is instead of really focused at these leaders who Jesus was trapping at that moment who wanted to do away with him, is that we very easily leave this passage way back in history. And it was an amazing moment in in salvation history in our understanding of what Jesus did when he confronted these people and he 's told them in the temple he 's told them through other things that, that basically i 'm the king of the kingdom, and this is what it means to follow me, and this is what 's going to happen in the Messiah, and this will be the outcome and it 's this amazing thing, and we go that was a transitional, transformative time in history, and if we leave it there we 're missing out on some amazing things God wants to teach us, but it takes us asking ourselves some really hard questions questions like in what ways do we continue to reject god's son oh you know on the surface level or even on a shallow level it's like well no you are so off base i haven't rejected jesus i've accepted jesus i prayed a prayer once said jesus come into my life i've accepted him i believe in him i haven't rejected the son and Wow, well, but I, 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 we have to ask the question. Like these tenants tending the vineyard, tending the life that God has given us, how have we rejected His Son? And I can't answer that question for you. All I can do is reject it, is reflect on it for me. And I know that we struggle and we wrestle through things because I've, I've talked to several of you after messages on different Sundays and say, hey, this thing you said is really kind of hitting a nerve, or yeah, it's really right along the line of what I'm struggling with. And, 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 and we we look at our life in Christ, and we know that oftentimes the Holy Spirit just compresses things on us. But what do we do with that? Do, do, do we use that for insight into our life and into who God is and who we are and how desperate we are for him? Or, or do we ultimately say, yeah, that's interesting, but... The way we live is saying God's kind of far off and I control this. And so that's kind of meddling in my life. When when I said yes to Jesus, I I looked at my life and said, this is pretty good. And I I follow Jesus because it enhances some things. It gives me some benefit that makes my life a little better than it would have been. Jesus, God keeps sending messengers and keeps, his son reaches out to us all the time. And, And in what ways do we reject that message? by not responding or opening up to what he wants to say. And these are hard, hard questions. They should be really hard. They should make us wrestle because they mess with us a lot. What well, we experienced that last week, too, is as we asked a question. Is my life more, more known by leaf or by fruit? I mean, that's a tough question. But when we ask these tough questions, we need to ask them in confidence. Why? Because for, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. This is, these questions are not to be asked. We're not supposed to ask ourselves these questions because we're in shame, but no, because that's God wants and promises to meet us in those places. That, that's when amazing change happens, is when we say, God, show me my sin. Show me the depth of my sin and show me the amazing magnitude of your goodness. I, I want to see both of them, and they aren't they aren't separate because in God's goodness he meets us in our place of need. He says, I want you in that place because that's where amazing things happen. That's where life abundant happens is when you, you ask those honest questions. Uh, the other question we have to ask is in what areas of life have we failed to yield fruit to God? Right? What's different about this parable and the, the passage in Isaiah is that this was a productive field. Right? In Isaiah, the field produced bad fruit. This had a bounty. This had a harvest. And they didn't. And Jesus, Jesus goes to great lengths to point this out to them as he tells this parable, right? I, I kept sending people and you kept saying no and you beat them and you killed them and ultimately you killed my son. And what's fascinating is I think there's even this point in there and they would have seen that as the prophets, right? But there's this interesting point when he talks about the second messenger that got sent, the second servant. And it says what did they do to that when they, they, they give him a blow to the head and basically disgraced him? And we think about a very particular scenario in the book of Mark where we saw that happen to John the Baptist who was beheaded at the ultimate striking on the head. I, I, Jesus is just, he's just digging at them about what they've done and how they've abused this responsibility and how they've completely left God out of the picture to do their own thing no matter what it looked like, no matter what it cost. They're doing their own thing because what matters is what we want. And you did this to God's servants and you've done it to his Son. And so we ask that question, in what, in what way have we failed to yield fruit to God? And we have to define fruit. Well, we started talking about that a little bit last week, that the, the true fruit of an apple tree would be other apple trees, not actually the fruit that sits on the branches, right? Because the, the, the apple is the seed carrier, and if it's growing in the wild, the, the purpose of an apple tree is to have more apple trees, right? The, those apples fall, and some of them germinate, and they grow other trees. That would be, that would be an impactful change. It would be multiplication of a tree, not just glorious, pretty-looking fruit on a vine or on branches. And so we define what kind of, what kind of fruit is this talking about? I and mean, You didn't produce fruit. And I think we get a big hint of, of what fruit is in the life of God's people by the, the context of the preceding story, and some they're going to follow in the coming weeks. For, for instance, fruit would be, this house of worship is to be a place of prayer for all people. It's right? that's, that's being fruitful. Last week, it also emphasized the idea of when you pray, seek forgiveness. Be forgiving. So, so being a forgiving and confessional people and body is, is bearing fruit. And we give that fruit to God. We'll, we'll, we'll learn in next week's sermon that, that being fruitful will be giving to God what is God's. And, and to you know, give the answer ahead of time, we, what do we owe God? We owe him everything. Being fruitful would be saying, "I offer to God what is God's," and these tenants didn't come close to that. They didn't give them anything. They kept him out of the equation. We'll also learn in a few weeks in another passage that being fruitful would be loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's that's being fruitful if we were to summarize that, that God expects his vineyard to be an, an accepting, prayerful, forgiving, uh, devoted, loving fellowship of people who are built and centered and grounded around Jesus. That's being fruitful. And so we ask ourselves, how, how am I not yielding fruit to God? And once again, that's a, that's a tough question. But, but it's a question that we We have to ask. You see, just like these tenants, I think we have a tendency to think that we control our own little corner of the world. And and that God is somehow far off. And and he he, he exists to enhance our life and give us good things. But but asking hard questions like, how do I continue to reject God's son? And how do do I, what, what fruit am I not yielding to God that's really a tough place that messes with us and is really challenging and it, and it goes deep and it cuts deep. But that, that's what God's word is supposed to do. But we live in a world and in a Christian circles that really like some particular platitudes and cliches much better. But things like, um, there's nothing you can do to make God love you less and there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And, and I believe that's true. Right? We don't earn God's love. He poured it out, Right? But this is a really comfortable place to live and there are whole Christian ministries that have basically risen up on on this kind of promise that we live in these platitudes that make me feel good. But then we have these passages of scripture that that, they make us face the mirror. And they ask us things like, how have I failed to to, to yield fruit to God? How how do I still reject God's son? I don't like that question. I'm going to go back over here. There's nothing I can do to make God and, and deeply, and, and passionately, and, and eternally. We're, we're, we're living here where things make us feel good, and we think we control it, because our little corner of the world, we can control. And, and eventually this passage says that, that God says, enough is enough. <sighs> Ooh, that's, that's not comfortable. But, but he's telling us that this is, this is the great truth, when he says there's no condemnation for those that are in me, he means that. He, he, he desperately wants us to come before him and say, I, you need to show me. Just like, just like when we saw Bartimaeus in the story a few weeks ago, right? The disciples were on the road and, and Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, we want power. We want to rule things. We want to be in charge. And he says, you don't know what you're asking for. And then they saw Bartimaeus, this blind man, says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And we saw in that context of this whole big block of teaching that that Jesus is wanting to point out to his disciples that, that spiritual eyesight being restored is what following him is about. When we say, I want to see, we're really saying, I want to change. And Jesus is saying, that's where I want you. I want you in that place because I love to give gifts that will change you. I love to give wisdom. I love to give nurture. I love to give love and compassion. Do you want to live there or do you want to live over here and say, yeah, well, Nothing I can do to make God love me less. It's it's a tough place. Tough questions that he wants us to ask. We have a a lot of bird feeders at our house, probably seven or eight bird feeders, scattered, all different kinds of bird feeders in our front yard, and our backyard. Because the springtime is awesome because all kinds of birds show up. And we have the the goldfinches that show up and they eat on these little, you know, thistle feeders and they hang upside down to eat. You ever seen those? It's fascinating these birds they cling on and they bend and eat and then we have we have house finches we have uh, blue jays and we get orioles usually a couple times and then we have hummingbirds on other feeders we have all these birds that come nuthatches, we live on mountain chickadee road which is the worst name of a road forever but uh, uh it's too long to fill out on a form but we get mountain chickadees and they're awesome they fill the trees but, but the birds i detest showing up every spring are the starlings starlings are just yeah, little birds, right? They just, they just look evil, and they, they're a little bigger. And I think it's still legal. You don't have to have a license to kill starlings. I think. I'm hoping that's true. No. Um, I'm not a completely mean person, but these starlings come in, and they take over. I mean, they come flopping in there, and these bird feeders are too small for these big old starlings, and they hit it, and seeds fly everywhere, and all the other birds take off, and, and these starlings just take over, right? As if we own this. This is our feeder. And they, just, and they just destroy it, right? It's as if they think that's their feeder. They own that feeder. They control that feeder. No, I own that feeder. You're just here because I provided something for you. What are you going to do when it's gone? You're going to put more food in it? No, I put more food in it. And, and I also have this little, my, my son when he was growing up had this little pellet soft gun. <laughs> Shoots these little foam little pellets, which don't kill starlings they sure startled the starlings Pew, and they're gone I love it it was awesome they think they control that but I do they think they own it but I own it and, and boy that, that's a call for our lives too because I deep down think that I own my little corner of the world and God although I believe in him and I read his word and I think it's true and I trust and I believe in Jesus deep down I live my life as if he's kind of far away he's saying you don't own that life I own that life. How, how are you being a steward of that life? That's what this story is about. It's about stewardship in all of life. Are, are we giving to God out of abundance? The, the problem with the story in Isaiah with the people was that they, they had all this lavished on them and, and they, were, they had no gratitude. We have, we have all this lavished on us, life itself, but, but we treat it as if we control it. And... and and we, we can easily look at our church and say, well, we control this. We, we, we know what to do. And Jesus says, you don't, you don't own that church. I own that church. And, and what's our role in the community? You don't own that community. I own that community. Are you going to be stewards of what I've given you? Are you going to live in gratitude? Are you going to yield fruit back to me? Are you going to give to me out of the abundance that I've given to you in all kinds of ways? Will you steward your life? I gave you. These are tough questions to ask ourselves. How, how are we not being that way? And, and if we truly ask that question in all transparency, because that's where life happens, that's where kingdom life happens, that's where grace happens, and abundance happens, and forgiveness happens, for love happens. He says, You have to meet me there. Don't spend your life over here. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less, and nothing I can do to make God love me more. Don't live a cliche life. Is what Jesus is telling us. Enter into life to the full, and that means getting messy, because that's where change happens. So, so my prayer for all of us is that we will we will honestly ask these kinds of questions, as painful as they are, because we we are really good at pretending. How are things going? I could stand and have a little more quiet time. I don't pray enough. I mean, good cliche answers. No, no, I've been praying lately and God has shown me that I am a selfish man. Ooh, I don't want to hear that. But but, but it's the truth. Will we let God step in and impact us in ways that are absolutely life-changing and life-giving? Because he's promised that that is true. It starts with asking really hard questions. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it in 2,000 years after you were here physically on earth, it, it still whacks us upside the head. It, it still makes us, I don't know, would be tempted to live in shame when we understand how far how far we fall short of who you want us to be and how, how you want us to be, yet in the middle of that you make promises that you meet us where we are. And there is no condemnation. There is no shame. Why? Because you're, you're the Father who loves us. And in that love you want to build us and grow us and nurture us into people that are more and more after the heart and like the likeness of your son Jesus. Father, what an amazing promise. And And... And every day we wrestle with whether that's true or not. And so we gravitate towards cliches and platitudes instead of into the challenging questions that bring life.